Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. So I thought this week we'd tackle a subject that we've not tried before, Neil, which is, uh, I don't know, you're a football fan? Mm, not really, actually. Mm, but a... it sort of does seem to stir emotions like almost anything else other than the NHS. Do you not even have a team? Sort of, but I'm not prepared to disclose at this stage. Or is it Liverpool or Birkenhead Town or something? <laughs> is Birkenhead Town a thing? Well, Tranmere Rovers. Tranmere Rovers, okay, 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 okay. I'm really not a football fan. I mean, I kind of like watching it, but I don't have a team. But I have been watching with more interest the takeover battle surrounding Manchester United with mounting astonishment, really, at the... Uh, ambitions of these people, the Glazers, who own it, these Americans, who seem to want $7 billion or somewhere close to that for essentially a, a large building in Manchester with a car park around it and a training ground and some 20-year-old to 30-year-old players whose value sort of de- presumably depreciates as their career nears its close. And, <laughs> and, uh, yes, and it strikes but... me that is quite a, a sort of extraordinary thing that this thing should be worth so much. But like a Gucci bag, the Manchester United brand is extremely valuable and extremely hard to value. Okay. But as I know absolutely nothing about this, we thought we'd get an expert to come and join us to try and unpick the uh, mysteries of football valuations. And uh, Kieran Maguire, who is the lecturer in football finance at Liverpool University and also host of a football finance podcast called The Price of Football, has uh, agreed to come along and uh, read the runes on not only Manchester United, but also what on earth is the... Uh, is the Premier League really worth? And can it continue to grow in the incredible way it has in the past? And is football basically a massive bubble? So welcome, Kieran. Thank you very much. I suppose we should start by talking a bit about Manchester United and this idea that this football club, which I think a few years ago, I seem to remember, was I think when Sky tried to buy it in the 1990s, it was worth about £900 million or something. Yep. It's now worth... $7 billion. There was an original attempt to buy it for £10 million back in the late 80s. Then it was bought by the Glazer family for around about yeah. £700 million in 2005 right. via a leverage buyout. Okay. And they're now looking for $7 billion as, as a price. And people are scratching their heads because we had Newcastle United being sold to the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund. 18 months ago for 300 million sterling. So is Manchester United worth 20 times Newcastle United? That appears to be the question. There do appear to be people interested in paying a high price. But if you do revenue multiples, EBITDA multiples, if you do a DCF model, any of the traditional valuation techniques in respect of Manchester United, the numbers come nowhere near what we are seeing being quoted in the media. So therefore, we, we enter the realms of trophy asset pricing. Okay, can I just run you through some of these valuations? So revenues are around $700 million, and it's 10 times that. Well, premium of somewhere up to about 80% on the quite highly valued market price, because Manchester United is quoted on the stock market, and even that valuation looks pretty head-scratching. 
or it's as you say, it's it's about thirty times its earnings before interest, depreciation, tax, and amortization. Yeah, which is sort of the profit of before anything gets taken off. Yeah, it's the sort of valuation you might expect for a rapidly growing tech company uh, when they were high fashion a year or two ago. Yeah, it's dot com time, isn't it? I think that is a fair assessment. The owners of Manchester United, the reason why Manchester United is listed in New York instead of London is that they are Uh trying to fashion Manchester United as a quasi-tech, quasi-dot-com entity in the sense that Manchester United claim to have 1.1 billion followers around the world. And therefore, on an annual basis, they're making about 60 cents per fan per year. And if you can engage people digitally, there's the chance to increase that particular metric and therefore boost the revenues and therefore boost the value of the club. Yeah, so this is what we used to call in the dot-com day. I remember writing about these things, eyeball-based valuations. (laughs) Yes, yes, they're called subscribers, but they don't. (laughs) (laughs) Which meant you could count everyone twice as two eyeballs. (laughs) Do you think that uh, 1.1 billion figure is credible? I personally don't. It's it's effectively saying that one person in seven on the planet uh, claims to be a follower of Manchester United. I, I guess if you asked people to name a football club, Manchester United would be one of the first ones that they mention. And the market consultants that were asked to do this research probably took that as the basis for uh, extrapolating the numbers. So as always with with anything which is not nailed down, treat with a considerable degree of caution. Now, there are two bidders in this battle. One, a top Qatari royal called Sheikh Jassim bin Hamad al-Tani, presumably rich, and a British businessman called Jim Ratcliffe, who did make a lot of money out of, also out of the oil business, putting together old chemicals, factories and refineries. But do you think that even these people who, at least one of them is as rich as Croesus, are up for paying this price? Will the Glazers get what they want? I don't think the Glazers will necessarily get what they want. But what they've managed to do is, because Chelsea Football Club was sold Mm. as a distressed asset about 12 months ago for £2.5 they've used that as a benchmark. Now, the chances are that the Chelsea owners substantially overpaid for that club. But if you ignore that, and that's what the Glazers are trying to persuade everybody to do, then you could say that Manchester United is worth substantially more. Based on the stories we've seen in the media to date, the offers have been in the region of 4.5 to 5 billion sterling. So it's not a huge distance away from the asking price. So that's slightly above the market price if you think about it because you've got a market capitalization of 3.2 and then you've probably got about one and a half 1.3 billion of debt so that gets you to whatever it is about four and a half (laughs) so basically people are saying we'll pay basically what the inflated market price says that's right the the market price had fallen i mean manchester united were first listed in in august 2012 at $12 a share, and that had dropped yeah. by around about 10% to do with the 10-year anniversary. So they were trading yeah. at around about $10.5. And mm. since the announcement that the Glazer family were open to discussions, we've seen speculative purchases, as you would anticipate in any market, with a view to, to people trying to effectively ride the wave and sell at a premium themselves. 
Okay, so basically it looks as if they are pushing very hard and judging by some of the things that are coming out of certainly the Ratcliffe camp, they're trying to find ways of... Reminds me a bit of Damien Hurst trying to sort of claim he'd sold a skull with diamonds in it for $10 million or something. It turned out that he'd sold it half of it to himself and got people to buy little shares elsewhere to get the valuation up. I'm not sure that's entirely a fair description of what Jim Ratcliffe does. You know, he's built this business and it's a real business and it's worth a great deal. I think he could, he's probably good for the money. The question is, are the Glazers serious about selling or are they just playing games and if so do they really expect to get seven billion dollars for this club i think we need to look at the glazer families as individuals there are six siblings from what we are hearing two of them want to remain at manchester united they feel that even at seven billion dollars the club is undervalued the other four have had enough it would be a substantial return on their initial investment, especially given that it was an LBO acquisition in the first place. So the amount of money put into the club by the Glazer families is, is fairly minuscule. Mm. So we're seeing various schemes arising. And I absolutely agree with you. So Jim Ratcliffe with, with Ineos has been very successful in building up the company, diversifying from the initial chemical works. He is uh, allegedly the, the richest man in the UK. So he certainly has resources. He himself went on record saying about four years ago that there's a fool out there who's prepared to pay £2 billion for a football club in the <laughs> Premier League, and I'm not that fool. Well, he's, he seems to have backtracked. He's willing to pay five. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the, the nature of one of the deals which is being discussed is that a significant number of the shares are traded publicly. The rest are owned privately by the Glazer family, and they've got different voting structures. The the B shares, which are owned by the Glazers, carry 10 votes apiece. The publicly traded shares carry one vote apiece. That's quite similar to tech companies themselves, the likes of Facebook and so on. So what Sir Jim is supposedly doing is going to buy out four of the Glazer siblings, not acquire any of the publicly listed shares and allow two of the Glazer's children, I think it's Joel and Avram, to remain as shareholders with a minority stake. And probably they would also have some form of board representation. So that way, he achieves control by getting at least 51%. The Glazer family who wants to leave, get to leave. The Glazer family that wants to stay, get to stay. And those people with the publicly traded shares will probably see the value of those shares substantially fall back to pre-speculative levels. God, sounds like the script for the successor to succession, I would say. I mean, one thing about the Glazers is that they're very unpopular, aren't they? This leverage buyout that they did was seen as starving the club of, of money for new stadiums, star players and so forth. And there have been huge fan demonstrations. Is that not going to create a bit of a rod for old Jim's back if he comes along with a couple of Glazers on board? <laughs> Team Ratcliffe, as it were. Doesn't he need to shake them off entirely to uh, persuade the fans that he's a a new broom or whatever it is? I I think you're exactly right. He's managed to play the, 
I'm a lad from Manchester card, very well to date. He, he says he used to go and watch Manchester United when he was a kid. He grew up in Oldham, so it's not far away from central Manchester itself. Under the Glazer family, under the leverage buyout that we've had, the club has paid around about $1.1 billion in interest as far as the debt is concerned. And the initial debt was around about $700 million. So clearly it's been a, a scenario in which there's been no attempt to make significant inroads into the quantum of the debt itself. The banks are perfectly happy because Manchester United is a is a cash generative business. It's, it's relatively low risk. So they're, they're quite happy to take the interest. The accusations made by the fans is that there's not been enough money invested in terms of talent, although an analysis of that over the course of the last decade would indicate that's not the case. Manchester United pay the highest wages. They've got this highest net spend over the last decade as far as talent recruitment is concerned. Mm. Old Trafford itself as a physical asset has been allowed to decay. The facilities there, I know you're not football fans. If you went to Old Trafford, you'd probably never set foot in the football ground again. The catering facilities are archaic. The washroom facilities are practically non-existent. And it is a very, very poor level of of service that you're given. But people go along there to watch football and and are quite forgiving. Valuing a trophy asset like this is almost impossible. I mean, you can look at the valuation on LVMH, which is extremely high. You could look at something like a major London hotel, like the Ritz or the Savoy. These businesses never make any money. They are lucky if they cover their outgoings. But each time they're traded, they show a very substantial capital gain for the vendor. And I guess that that's what the Glazers have got in mind. But do you think if they got something like the sum that they are talking about, would the buyer be a mug? Or would we in five years' time, ten years' time, be saying five, six billion pounds for Manchester United? What a bargain that was. I think, I think there's an element of both. It certainly would be a speculative purchase at that price. The, the find a bigger fool model does apply in, in football because if you talk to, to owners of clubs or past owners, they say it's a bit like buying, buying a race course in the sense that the best days of, of your period of ownership is, is the day that you buy it and the day that you sell it and the bits in between were quite painful. Manchester United <laughs> have, have lost money over the period of ownership of, of the Glazer family. That's that 17 years without making an overall profit. And, and yet they're looking to sell for around about 10 times their, the original purchase price. If you take a look at Chelsea Football Club, who were acquired by Roman Abramovich, he acquired it for next to nothing. He lost over a million dollars a week for 19 years. And yet it was sold for somewhere in the region of $3 billion yeah. as a distressed asset when it was effectively being controlled by the UK government with a view to trying to, to divest it as quickly as possible. So th- there is that element of find a bigger fall. There's also the, the element of if you are an ultra high net worth individual and if you look at the people with whom you circulate, Everybody else has the apartment in Monaco. Everybody else has the yacht and two helicopters. So how do you set yourself aside? You say, I'm the owner of Chelsea or I'm the owner of Manchester United. Next week, we are hosting Real Madrid or Bayern Munich or Liverpool Football Club. Would you like to come to the boardroom as my guest? And all of a sudden, you've owned the room. And it's, and it's that type of uh, <laughs> speculative uh, thing that we're looking at. 
There is a case for saying that the the owners or the prospective owners are probably bullish with regards to things such as the metaverse. And you can only get 75,000 people into Old Trafford. But if we are will be all using headsets in, in, in 3D in five or 10 years time, you can effectively then get Old Trafford in a 3D experience with, with a tangible experience to millions of people around the world. And if you charge them 10 or 20 bucks a time, then that business model looks very successful. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I suppose that brings us on to the other side of this, which is um, the race horses, race courses have been changing hands. Race horses or race courses? Anyway, whichever. No, I think race courses. Race is, courses have been like changing a... hands at ever higher prices, as Neil points out. And, and the backdrop to that has been this incredible growth in the value of the Premier League, the football business and that raises a question which is is this growth capable of continuing at the same rate i went to the deloitte yearbook which is apparently the absolute bible the wisdom or whatever for football finance and you go back to 1997 1998 the total revenues of this thing are under a billion and they're roughly split a third a third a third between what are called match day revenues which are kind of things presumably get sold tickets and stuff like that broadcast revenues and commercial which is sort of sponsorship you look what's happened since then and it's gone up to about six billion and the growth is pretty much all been in broadcast and commercial broadcast revenues have gone up by 11 and a half times to three and a half billion commercial by almost 10 times to 1.7 billion match day sort of it's gone up a bit. It's gone up twice, two times, but it's become a smaller and smaller proportion of the whole. So it's now only 13% of the... So everything really is based on the idea that you can wring more and more money out of the broadcast and commercial sides. Is there a point at which either the British consumer goes, oh, I've had enough, I can't afford to pay any more for my football, or is there any limit to the extent to which all these 1.1 billion fans around the world can be persuaded to spend ever more money watching British football as opposed to some other form of football. You rightly highlight the broadcasting issues and what we've seen with regards to the two most recent broadcast deals is that they have flatlined. So we we saw spectacular growth in both 2014 and 2017. There was a 70% increase in in the amount that uh, Sky and BT Sport were prepared to pay. And the reason was at that particular time, they were effectively both parking their tanks on each other's lawn and then firing £50 notes worth of, of increased broadcast revenues at the Premier League because it is the one area where fans are not prepared to, to cut the cord. And that, of course, that, that's you know, the churn rate if you're a subscription broadcaster is absolutely critical. So having the Premier League rights was, was essential. There is still growth in the overseas market. The Premier League is broadcast to 198 different countries and, and that has been the main driver of the growth. If we take a look at the whole history of the Premier League, total revenues have increased by 2,800% since it commenced in 1992. Yeah, it's amazing. But the problem is that there's been no cost control. So whilst revenues have gone up by 2,800%, wages have gone up by 3,400. Yes, the only loyal element of a football club are the fans, the players, managers, shareholders... They're all either hired guns or just there because they're financially backing it. And I think that's one of the sad things about football. But nevertheless, if the fans are going to be exploited, I'm afraid you can't really 
complain when people exploit them. It's an addictive product and it has a degree of brand loyalty that exists nowhere else on the planet. You know, I'm, I, I've got an iPhone, an iMac, an, an Apple Watch, Apple earphones. I've got, I've got the full set. But if Samsung came along and said to me, Kieran, tell you what, ditch it all and we will give you for the next five years the equivalent Samsung products, just sign me over. You know, I'm, I'm there. If another football club came to me and said, if you're prepared to give up your season ticket for the team that you support and come and, come and support us instead, and we'll give you a free season ticket to watch all of the matches, a football fan would not countenance that. It, it is would be completely alien to them. Of the 92 clubs that currently take place in, in senior football, as far as England are concerned, over 80 of them are losing money. Now, this is for an industry which has been in existence for over a century. If, if I was to say to you, I'm running a company and wages are 240% of revenue, what would you do if, as a consultant? <laughs> you'd say, close it down immediately. Well, in football, you just carry on. But that, once again, as you say, is a tremendous vulnerability, which is that while the revenues are climbing as they have been, even if your cost control is fairly crap, you can basically just about persuade yourself that it's okay because you'll get more revenue next year but if ever credibly that stopped essentially these wages are going to be very very hard to roll back without causing enormous angst to the fans as all these famous footballers have to go and play their trade in Italy or Spain or wherever they would go but there's that and also the fact that footballers are on fixed term fixed fixed price contracts so what, what we find quite often, for example, if a, if a football club is relegated or if it is under hard times, you are left with underperforming football players on mm. contracts that nobody else is willing to match. So therefore, the advice that you would give to the player if you were the, their representative is sit it out for the next two years, go home, play on, you know, play on your PlayStation or your Xbox, get a few rounds of golf in and pick up the X thousand pounds a week where X is a large number until that contract expires. No, very rational. Is there a risk of another product, whether it's another football league, a new league like the European Super League or some other sport coming along and basically eating football's lunch? I, I think it's highly unlikely. It has been part of culture, history and heritage of, of many towns and cities. Over the last 100, 150 years or so, rightly or wrongly, it's, it's, it's a bit like a cuckoo in a nest. It's squeezed all of the other sports out of existence. Mm. You know, I, when I was growing up, it was football and rugby in winter. It was tennis and cricket in the summer. Well, well now football has become a 12-month-a-year industry and trying to get at much interest. You know, if you go along to a county cricket match, it's, it's you and a dog that are watching. And the, the other sports are fighting for, mm. for bandwidth. They're fighting for clicks. They are fighting for attention because, rightly or wrongly, football sells. If, if you take a look at the Twitter accounts, for example, of some of the main football reporters, they've got millions of followers and all that they're doing is just passing on gossip. Okay, so that's football, unstoppable juggernaut. Could there within the football universe be a new product, a rival league that could take it away from the Premier League? The Premier League has the advantage of getting in first as far as overseas markets are concerned. It also has the advantage of being more competitive than the football that we see in Spain, Italy, Germany, and so on. Mm. And the fact that English is everybody's second language. So you, you put yeah. those three together, you talk to broadcasters, and it's Manchester United, Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester City. These are the brands which travel 
globally now. The other leagues are fighting for space. I think it would need a major scandal, a major sea change in mentality, because the great thing and the bad thing about football is that you fall in love with a club at the age of seven and you're still supporting them at the age of 80. If men were as faithful to their wives as they are to their football teams, we wouldn't have any divorce. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, it's because football's more important. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.